any questions from the genealogy of Jesus? Yes. Okay. Sure. I think, okay. So if you look at, I'll just use the ESV text. Give me one second. I'm just going to pull up the Greek. Okay. And I'll have it in 10 seconds. Okay. Okay. So the Greek and himself, Jesus, um, began to rule or minister being about 33 years. Um, and being the son, as it was supposed, of Joseph. And then it just said, of Joseph, the one of Eli, the one of Matat, the one of... So the question is, where do you close the, the parentheses? If you move the parentheses over, what you get is the same thing, but here's what it looks like if you pull the parentheses out. Being the son of Eli. If you move the parentheses over to, to include Joseph as well, then the parenthetical information that breaks up the flow of thought is being, supposed the son of, being up supposedly of Joseph. So Jesus was about 33 years of age when he began his ministry, being the son, supposedly of Joseph, of Eli. Because that second son in the ESV isn't in the text. It begins that pattern of the one. You, you see it, the article, two, matu, two, the one of, the one of a weak substantive. So the only occurrence of huios, son, is being the son, there's the actually only occurrence of the word son in the text, of, supposedly of Joseph, the one of Eli, the one of, the one of, the, it means son, but the only actual occurrence in the text is there. So, if you're reading it that way, what it's saying is Jesus is the son of Eli, the first person who can rightly claim him because the, the woman, Mary, wouldn't show up in the genealogy. It's very uncommon. There are some women in genealogies, but it's not terribly common. So the first man you could grab onto would be Mary's father. Yes? Yeah, yeah. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, or Eli. Heli, Eli, Eli. What? What's your side? NAS. Let me see what the NAS says. That's New King James. Hold on. NAS. When he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 33 years of age, being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph. Being was supposed, the son of Joseph... It doesn't work as well. Yeah. Um, <laughs> just, just throw it out and give it to me. I mean, sorry. Um, no, you're fine. It's, no, it's, it's tough because these are not English ways of saying things. We don't say the one of, the one of, the one of, the one of, the one of. Matthew keeps saying begat, 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 begat. Again, not a normal way of saying things. And so they're trying to put it into smooth English, which they really have to do. Um, it's just easier to see how that flow of thought could work when it's lined up. You know, seeing Greek rarely lets you do magic tricks. It does help sometimes clarify and simplify things. So I'm reading people arguing this, and then when I actually look at it in the Greek, I'm like, oh, yeah, that could totally work. You know, and it's just... Here's a Greek. I'll do word for word. And himself, 
being Jesus. So Jesus himself was being, um, no, sorry, and yeah, t- was being um, to rule or to begin to rule or to begin his ministry. That's what they translate, began to minister, archimenos, um, about, about 30 years. So Jesus was being about 30 years beginning to rule or beginning to minister, beginning to do his thing. That's the first phrase. So Jesus, so let's put it in English. Jesus was about 30 years of age when he began his ministry. That should be the first thought. Then, um, being son, as was supposed of Joseph, the one of Eli, or Heli. That, that's word for word, right? Just, I mean, transliterating straight through Greek. Um, so, so I know, I hate having to pull these, like, in the Greek, it really makes... But it is one of those things where, and there are translations that where it lines up and it works. Like, the ESV is not far off. But um, it's really not that big of a trick. What he's doing is he's ruling Joseph out, then, in this case. Being the son, people thought of Joseph, of this other person. And then, yeah, does, does that make sense? The, the only other option that people put forward, I don't think it works nearly as well, is that um, Matthew gives us, it's, it's unquestionable that Matthew's following the crown. Matthew's following the crown right on down. And so, but you and I both know that when you get to an, a dead line, the crown can be passed to some further out thing. The thought there is that Matthew just gives the, the lineage of Dissension for Joseph, and that Luke gives his actual physical dissension for Joseph. That's one possibility. It's, it's possible. I still have a big problem with them. We still have no reason to think that Jesus is from the body of David, which to me is a big deal. The, the, the Vedic covenant in 2 Samuel is a big deal from your own body. And he can be David's legal heir. He can't be from David's own body unless we can establish Mary is, is from the Davidic line. Um, and then you also run into the problem of the Jehoiakim Jehoiakim um, problem of the curse from Jeremiah. So for a number of reasons, I think the Mary explanation is the simplest, but it, it, it can be tricky. But, but whatever it is, it's not like the early Christians didn't notice this. I just get annoyed when I see these, these skeptics are like, aha, I gotcha. As if like the first church would be like, oh, wow, we hadn't seen that. I wish you'd pointed that out earlier. We could have gone home and saved some time. Like, this is so, they're so separated. You'd have to be a fool not to see it. And, and well, I just, right, well, and he's ruling Joseph out. He's telling you, not of Joseph. You see, I mean, because that's the thing. He's saying being as supposedly the son, which lets you know he knows it's not the son of Joseph, which would be the key, the clue. We're going the other route then. We're not going the Joseph route. We're going the other route. And the, the, the part you have to assume is that Eli or Healy is the father of Mary. Um, that, that's, that's, you'd have to make that connection for that to work. That's really the only dot you have to connect for that to work, which I, I think is not that big of a deal. Any, any other questions with that? I don't want to... We can take our time with this. Um, when I first started diving, I'm like, oh, this is going to be a mess. By the end of the week, I'm like, oh, this is easy. I mean, it's just not a big deal. But, um, that, but I had a week of studying it. You've had 45 minutes this morning. So um, questions, thoughts, observations, babies. Hello, Elion. Hello. Okay. Okay. Yes. No. 
No, and that, and, that, and that's no, that's the point I was making. Go to John eight. In John eight, they are aware. They are aware of the virgin story conception, and they throw that in Jesus' face. Obviously, not believing it. Obviously, thinking Jesus was simply Joseph. Either Mary, either Mary had. They they obviously believe Jesus was born outside of wedlock or conceived outside of wedlock. And so, in John eight. Um, they throw that in his face. So, that's John 1. John 8. Hold on. Try to get here my little online electric Bible. Um, okay. So, we'll pick it up in... Um, okay, let's pick it up in 39. They answered him, Abraham is our father... Jesus said, if you were children of Abraham, you'd be doing the works Abraham did, but now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works of your father. They said to him, and here's what they throw it in his face, we're not born of sexual immorality, and the implication, like you, because the word had somehow gotten around about Mary, because it was public enough that Joseph in Matthew's gospel is getting ready to divorce her. And how else would Joseph know she was with child? She's starting to show. They weren't married yet. Um, so the fact that they'll throw that in Jesus' face, but no one ever, ever challenges his Davidic claim, ever. I mean, that's just not one of the lines. And it would be so easy to disprove if they could. It'd just be a matter of going to the synagogue, either in Bethlehem or the temple in Jerusalem, and verifying the records. And whoever Jesus is, if he can't show Davidic descent, he can't be the Messiah. I mean, that, that's so... The, we aren't maybe super familiar with the Davidic covenant, but for any, you, you know how excited we get about, about our elections because of who our rulers are is a big deal. Think how big a deal that is for the Jews, and they're waiting for this coming Messiah who will cast off the Romans. Man, you've memorized, you're studying, you're constantly thinking about 2 Samuel and that promise, and you know what God says from your own body. They never attack Jesus along that line. He, he, there's never any challenge, even in the first century after the closing. There's nev they never go along those lines. Why? Everyone accepted he's a Davidite. No, no one challenged that. Um, which I know it's an argument from silence, but it's still significant because they were trying to attack him every which way they could. And it would be the easiest thing in the world for them to, to falsify if it was false. In other words, Mary and Joseph and Luke couldn't bluff. Their bluff would easily be called if they were bluffing, if they were lying. Um, does that make some sense? Okay, okay. Any other Luke genealogy? Okay, any other questions in general? Okay. We're going to talk about the spiritual gift of God. Yes. King. Hmm. Somebody. Somebody said that. Yeah. Okay, okay. Um, well, the, the, the simple point, Dave, is this. If you're going to say that 
there's two possibilities. Luke knows what he's doing, and if what he's doing isn't right, and here, you know, guys know the golden rule, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you? There's the golden rule of authors. Treat other authors as you wish others would write, treat the things you write. And so when someone says something or writes something, and this is just an everyday life that's hard to grasp or you're not sure what they mean, don't immediately assume they're an idiot. There might be something going on here. So Dave, Luke and Matthew's Gospels overlap from Abraham to Jesus. And then Luke goes all the way back from Abraham to, to uh, Adam, and, and Matthew doesn't. And what's interesting, what's striking is the Matthew and the Luke genealogies match up identically from Abraham to David. They're identical. They match, they agree perfectly, okay? From David to Jesus, they are totally dissimilar, except for two names who probably aren't even the same people, okay? So the question is, how is Luke skilled enough to get perfect alignment in the first half, and then totally missed the second half. Like, how do you explain that? I mean, if, if this is just a silly error, considering that the first place that Matthew and Luke deviate is which son of David the bloodline goes through. And Luke claims it's David's son, Nathan. Now, how on earth is Luke so stupid that he doesn't know to say Solomon? Solomon's no minor. I mean, you've really got to say, this, guy, this has got to be the biggest, like it's, like, it's like Luke's doing really well, and then he like, you know, smokes a bowl or something and starts just writing crazy talk. I mean, it's that much of a shift from he's spot on, he's spot on. Nathan? I mean, it, it's just, it's mind-blowing to suggest that a guy who's got all this other information, he knows this guy's the high priest, he knows in this year, he, he knows all this stuff, and then he says, Nathan? I mean, to explain that is just ridiculous. Like, maybe something else is going on here. Because that, that error, that if it is an error, is so grievous that um, you have to be a complete moron. I mean, you could go down to our Sunday school classes. Who's David's son? The, the, there's a ton of names they could say. They're all going to say Solomon, right? Luke messed that up. Yes. That gives him a break, yeah. But so I'd point that out because to me, constructing, because he gets so many things so precisely right to then say all of a sudden he loses his mind and just says, I'll just start making names up. You know, it's just ridiculous. He should have at least known Solomon and Rehoboam and from there on it starts getting, who knows? I mean, I couldn't name them from there. But I mean, good grief. Our kids in children's church could give you Solomon. And Luke clearly knows his Bible. It's just, it's, it's mind-numbing to think that's what's going on. So, and since they're not even close, it's not like Luke and Matthew are pretty close, but there's three or four errors. It's just, fing! I mean, they're 90 degrees different. These are two different genealogies for two different people. That's the first conclusion you've got to come to. And so then either somebody's got a wrong genealogy, or wait a second, does Jesus have two human parents? Yep. One adopted, one biological. And then you look at it and some of the translations and in Greek, and if you, like I was saying in the ESV, if you move the parentheses over two words, so it encapsulates Joseph as well, it makes perfect sense. Jesus was the son, as was supposed to be of Joseph, of Heli or Eli. And then you go, who's he? Well, it's Mary's dad, you know? Um, there we go. 
Throw in, the fact, throw in the fact that throughout Luke's entire gospel, he's been focusing almost exclusively on Mary when he deals with the parents of Jesus. The only time Joseph does anything on his own is when he's of the house and tribe of David and he goes up to Bethlehem. But we get Mary's song, we get Mary's conversation with Elizabeth, we get the angel and Mary. When Jesus' parents meet him in the temple, it's Mary who talks to him. Luke is giving us, by and large, Mary's account of what happens. There's no mention, like Matthew has, of the angel coming to Joseph. That's not what Luke's concerned with. He's not, I mean, there's no contradiction, he's just not telling that story. Those are not elements of the story he's concerned about. So, after focusing almost exclusively on Mary in regards to the parents, it's not surprising when he gets to the genealogy, he gives, anyway, it's, it's not a problem. It really isn't. And even among, well, yeah, I do. I got to, okay, yeah, there's a, yeah, gotcha. Um, he, he, Okay, um, there's a really helpful article, it's an essay in, um, in um, the Harmony of the Gospels by Thomas and Gundry that I thought was really helpful. It's like eight pages long, and after we get done, I'll be happy to photocopy that. And if anyone else wants a copy, we can, I can photocopy a copy for you as well. Um, that, that lines all these arguments up, deals with it handily. Yes, Serena? Because women aren't generally named in, in, in genealogies. Out of the 77 names I read, how many women showed up? None. Yes, there are four in Matthews. But they're significant because there are four. Because you know who he picks in Matthew? What four women show up in Matthew's genealogy? Two, pro- two prostitutes. Well, sorry. One real prostitute, one woman pretending to be a prostitute. Tamar was only pretending to be a prostitute. Let's give her that. Although she functioned as one. Okay. The four women that show up in Matthew's Gospel's genealogy are Rahab, Canaanite prostitute. Um, no, doing the prostitutes first. Then we have Tamar. Tamar was Judah's oldest son's wife. And he angers the Lord and God kills him. So as was the custom, her brother takes her as his wife to be a kinsman redeemer. His name is Obed. And Obed doesn't want to raise up kids for his dead brother because he doesn't want to split the inheritance, so God kills him. At that point, Judah's nervous about passing her off to his third and final son. So he says, uh, just hold on, I'll find someone for you. And a couple years go by, and he ain't finding nobody for her. So this is a classy story. And its positioning in Genesis is remarkable. This is the story that immediately precedes the story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife. He breaks the narrative of Joseph to tell us this story. Which, when something like that happens, you gotta, what's going on here? It's setting up a contrast. So she goes out into, so Judah is taking the, the sheep and the animals out to be shorn, and she goes out and dresses up like a temple prostitute. Assuming, of course, that Judah visited temple prostitutes, Canaanite prostitutes, and she's, he's negotiating the price to sleep with her. And he says, you'll give her such and such member of goats or whatever. And she says, well, how will I know that you'll give it to me? And he says, here, take this ring. And she takes it. And they sleep together. She gets pregnant. A couple months later, she goes home, takes off her prostitute garb. And um, she, Judah finds out she's pregnant. And he calls her and he's like, okay, we're going to have to put you to death because you're, you know, you're, you're sleeping around and you're not married. Tell us who the guy is. We'll put him to death too. And she goes, ah, it's the man who gave me this ring. 
And Judah goes, you can just read it. Judah goes, ah, you are more righteous than I. <laughs> that kid's name is Perez, messianic line, right there. And so that's the second woman. Then you get Ruth, um, who is a Moabitess, who is a pagan worshiper of other gods, so she got married into the family line. And then you get the adulteress Bathsheba. So Matthew's four women are four of the most, from a Jewish mindset, unclean, unfit, embarrassing examples in the Bible. This, I think that's probably the theme Matthew's going for, is to, to point out and highlight God's grace. They're not the people you'd expect. Some of the scumbags, if you will, of the biblical narrative are showing up in the Messianic line. So, so Matthew's inclusion of four women is significant, and it's unusual, and its significance comes from it being unusual. You go to read the, you read the genealogies in, in First Chronicles 1 to 8, you're not going to see many, if any, women. So Luke's following the standard pattern, no women. Matthew breaks the pattern to throw in four, we wish we'd rather forget about them type of people to the Jewish mindset, um, highlighting God's grace and highlighting it's not the good guys who God's picking. God's not picking the good ones. Right, he married into the husband's family. Because Ruth, the, the property went with Ruth, but Ruth needed a husband for there to actually be a real inheritance. Um, yeah. Yes. The, di- the diaspora, the diaspora, the scattering in 70 AD, at the, to that point, the records get destroyed. When is, what are you grinning at? You're like the cat who ate the canary. <sighs> uh, thank you, thank you. Um, look, a quick question on words. Is it banal or banal? Banal, right? I was listening to a book on, I was listening to an audio book and the guy said banal repeatedly. He said conquistador? Oh dear. Okay, sorry. Um, but did he say dynasty? Okay, sorry, sorry, okay. So, um, so the question, why not just say Mary? You don't normally put women in genealogies. And you can go read the genealogies I listed in the notes and check the first eight chapters of Chronicles to see that they don't normally include women. Um, you grab the men. But, but, but Serena's point is nowadays in modern Israel, they track their heritage to the women. Anyone know why that is? Because so many Jewish women were raped and mistreated that now they track it through the women. Um, it, from 70 AD till 1940s, the Jews were kicked around, tossed in and out of everywhere, and that's when they started tracking it through the mother instead of the father. There is no land to inherit anymore. That doesn't matter anymore. And so the bottom line is it's entirely likely one's mother was Jewish and either the slave of an, or whatever. You know what I mean? And so that's, that's why I started switching through, going through the mothers at that point for tracking lineage because there's no point, there's no inheritance, there is no land, there is no land divisions. Um, and so that sort of becomes a moot point. And many, many half-Jewish people had Jewish moms, many more so than the, had just had Jewish dads. And so that's when they decided, no, if your mom is Jewish, you're Jewish. And that's when 1940s, when they made the state of Israel, they let everyone come in. You said the show... I think one parent, really, but yeah. Any other questions on that? Yes, Anna. Oh, yes, but you got a baby in your arms. Okay. Um, I was just thinking about uh, David and Uriah's wife. 
Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Which is interesting because, like, Uriah was an honorable man and you just called her an adulteress not too long ago. Yeah. Well, I think they're more honoring Uriah than anything. Now, now let's face it, Uriah, Bathsheba sleeping with David is kind of like date rape. I mean, there's a sense when she's the king, how do you say no? But she didn't struggle. She, at least there's no record of her fighting it off. So whether or not, I mean, it, it's, it's kind of like when the president of the company is hitting on the secretary. I mean, there's a sense in which it's unfair, but Bathsheba legitimately has sex with Daniel, with David. She legitimately does that and... and it's some sense she's bearing some guilt of that. She's an adulteress. She's married, and she's having sex with the king. David bears the far greater guilt. And so another, you point out rightly, she's always thereafter mentioned as Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, or Uriah's wife. They're honoring his memory. He was one who was faithful to David. He was one who was faithful to his men, and this is how he gets treated. And so Bathsheba is always Uriah's husband, Uriah's wife, sorry, Uriah's wife. Um, but, she's, but she's not guiltless. David's sin is far greater. But it's not as though she was completely, I mean, she could have fought. She could have yelled. I mean, in some sense, she said, okay. She caved to the pressure. Um, so, um, yeah, that's why I called her an adulteress. But there's no way around, but there's no way around it. She committed adultery. Yeah. Under either direct or implied duress, sure. Um, I mean, how does one say no to the king? Um, but well, Nathan comes up and he's like, "You're the man." I mean, people do it, but it sure is, sure sure isn't going to be easy. Um, so I'm not trying to like vilify her, but I'm just saying from a Jewish. But the Jews are all priding themselves with who their parents are, and who the, you know we were sons of Abraham. And your Messiah came through Tamar, and your Messiah came through Rahab, and your Messiah came through. Um, so the name and all the, the, the ones who kind of, yeah, we, we don't talk about those ones in polite company, thank you very much. You know, that's, that's what's going on. But, okay. Well, I was just finding it interesting that, like, they play up David's guilt in the story, but they oh, yeah. don't really talk about her guilt when she's also guilty. Yeah. She's not the major character. David is. David's the king. David's the anointed. David has far greater knowledge. He's far more responsible. But she still suffers the loss of her child dying, doesn't she? So, I mean, she pays a price, to be sure. Um, a, a horrid price. Um, but fair enough. I'm not aware of any text vilifying her, um, in, in, intentionally rebuking her or whatever. Um, so, yeah. Yes? David had multiple Yes. Um, I didn't check that out. I think it's also... Oh, it's Bathsheba. No, it is Bathsheba. Thank you, Zach. Hey. Yeah. Always before... Wow. Okay, I didn't even realize that. Well, I know, I know the first son, the child that dies, is born. And then you have his, Solomon's older brother... Um, don't tell me. Um, Adonijah? Oh, that's David's son, Adonijah, but it's not Saul. Okay, thank you. Sorry. David, because he has multiple wives, his kids fight each other's a lot. Okay. And David's son, Amnon, rapes his half-sister, Tamar, which is why um, Absalom murders him, which is why David banishes him, which is why he ultimately mounts a coup. Yep. Messed up family. And then when Solomon's supposed to be made king, Adonijah 
tries to make this coup attempt too and quickly backs down and, and then basically begs for his life and Solomon says okay. And then later, who? Haggad. David had a wife named Haggad. Um, not Hagrid, Haggad. And um, later when Adonijah asked for, what was the name, what was the name of the uh, servant girl they had laid with David? She's right there. It's fascinating history. I, I highly recommend doing those Bible reading plans because the these aren't the types of stories that show up on the family Bible hour on the radio. You know, these, these what? Abishah? Agabashah. So when David's really, really old, they basically put a young woman in bed with him to keep him warm and also, I think, by implication, to test his virility. Um, it's kind of a test. Is he still fit to rule? So it's sort of a dual purpose. He's cold in bed, and is he, you know virile, and Adonijah requests later to marry her, and Solomon sees that for what it is. He's further trying to consolidate his claim to be the successor of David, and so he doesn't put to death. So Solomon puts to death his brother, his half-brother. David's kids are littered with blood and problems, um, which is why you don't want to have multiple wives, at least one of the reasons why you don't want to have multiple wives. Um, polygamy is not a, not a, not a good thing. Yes. Just a general comment. Yeah. Often when I'm reading through, I have to confess, I come to a genealogy, I skip over it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> the amount of stuff that you've gotten out of it and we've gotten out of it uh, proves that we, we shouldn't really do that and that every word of scripture mm. <laughs> it was really captivating, especially when it ends up Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. I mean, when you get to that, it's just like it's yeah. And, that's, and I think Luke's intentionally making that double entendre because he just had the father say, this is my son. That's the last thing ringing in our ears. And so when you get to the son of God, oh, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, it's kind of, it's, yeah, Adam's the son of God and Jesus is the son of God. That doesn't mean the same thing. Um, no, absolutely. Thank you. Yeah. I was talking to Zeb, I think, this morning about this. I think that genealogies are probably the last things to start to click as you get more and more and more familiar with your Bibles. I think that for Jewish minds or people who really, really, really know and have meditated through the Old Testament, seeing all those names brings to mind all those stories. And you can sort of think your way through, like, oh, yeah, you know what I mean? But if you're not super familiar with the names, the list is going to be meaningless. So I think, the, I think that I suspect the more I read my Bible, the more I read my Old Testament, the more names are going to pop out on genealogies. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. You know what I mean? And that, that stuff's going to pop. But uh, I think genealogies are probably some of the hardest things to grasp or benefit from if you don't know the Old Testament terribly well. And I admit, I'll, I'll admit there are times you see the genealogy where it stops and you just kind of speed read through it. You know, I've been there, done that. Um, so yeah, thank you though. Any other uh, thoughts or questions? Going once, going twice, and let's deal with the gift of tongues. All right. Well, I got 15 minutes. We can at least chip into it. Okay. Before we get to the gift of tongues proper, 
Um, what we're going to do is go to 1 Corinthians 12. How many of you have heard the term charismatic? Okay. That comes from a transliteration of a word used in 1 Corinthians 12. So what we're going to talk about is we, we left it off with that the Holy Spirit gives gifts um, when we are baptized by the Spirit at our conversion. The Spirit gifts us. And where I prove that, or one of the places we can prove that, is 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And he goes on, he gives a partial list. There's a lot of partial lists in Scripture. Um, First thing I'll say is this. We have no comprehensive list of all the spiritual gifts. Paul makes at least four partial lists, and there's significant overlap, but they're all unique. So what we get is not rather, here's your exhaustive list, rather, here are the gifts that Paul's focusing on, and, and you know, prophecy and tongues show up in most of them, but like gifts of help shows up. In, I mean, so we're not to think that any one list is meant to be the list. Rather, Paul is simply grabbing a handful at a time, and he'll grab some of the same ones, and he'll grab some other ones. The thought being there can be more than the gifts listed of gifts, okay? There's nothing that indicates in the text these are your gifts, no more, no less, because none of the lists are identical. And I meant to photocopy, I had a chart from House Charts of Christian Theology where he shows the various partial lists. Peter has one too, he lists a couple in First Peter. And there's plenty of overlap, but none of them are identical. Um, and everyone's got outliers. Um, so, any questions on that point before we go any further? So we got spiritual gifts are given, to each one of us is given a manifestation of the Spirit. And then, the word charismatic comes from the Greek word charismata, which means gift. Um, and Paul, so when we talk about charismatic gifts, we're generally talking about um, the, the gifts that Paul mentions, the, the spiritual gifts, or the spirituals are another way of saying it. Now, modern day, there's a denomination or a, or a subdenomination of Christianity, the charismatics. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the charismatic gifts in, are, are scriptural. They're right there, charismata just being the Greek. Um, and so here he gives a partial list right here in verse 6. To one is given the spirit of the utterance of wisdom, to another the utterance of knowledge, according to the same spirit, another faith by the same spirit, another gifts of healing by, one, by the one spirit, another the working of miracles, another prophecy, another the ability to distinguish between spirits, another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. These are all empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Okay? And then there's other lists in, 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 that Paul will give. He's not trying to be exhaustive. He's just grabbing. He's trying to show what he's demonstrating is the variety. We don't all get the same thing. That point's made even more explicitly clear a little later in the chapter. Um, go down to verse 27. Um, now, you're the body of Christ and individually members of it, and God has appointed... In the church, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then, then miracle, then teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administration, various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers? Now, simple question. What's the answer to that question? No. no. These are rhetorical questions, right? The assumed answer, no. Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? but earnestly desire higher gifts. So Paul's point is there's a variety of gifts, and not everybody has the same gift. 
That, that's the first point, okay? Um, I want to make one other point from this passage. Um, a couple of times Paul says this, um, but if you go to verse 4 of chapter 12. Now, there are a variety of gifts, but the same spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are a variety of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. Teach is given a manifestation of the spirit for the common good. Verse 11. All these are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Who determines what gift you get? Is there any, in other words, I don't see anything in the Bible that would indicate that I could possess, I could decide there's a gift I want and I could seek it and pray it and get it. Um, I know the, we just read a verse at the end. It said, look at verse, look at the last verse, verse 31. Um, not verse 31, yeah, 31. But earnestly desire the higher gifts. Those are plural commands. Earnestly desire the higher gifts. You all should earnestly desire the higher gifts. Look at verse chapter 14. Look at chapter 14, verse 1. These are all plural commands, and I think that's the key. Pursue love, earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you all may prophesy. By, by which I think all Paul's saying is that God would raise up prophets in your midst. I, I, all I'm getting at is I've seen on both sides of the fence, whether it's the charismatic side of the fence or whether it's the, the non-charismatic side of the fence, this notion of like if there's something that you want, some gift you want, just pray for it. By all means, pray for it. I don't think that's wrong. I just don't see anything in the Bible that suggests we have a whole lot to do with what gifts we get. That, that's all I'm saying. Um, it certainly can't hurt to say, Lord, I want to be able to teach. I want the gifts of teaching. Or Lord, I'd like to be able to heal, heal people. By all means, pray that. Go for it. I just don't see much biblical warrant suggesting that is a factor. I see the Spirit's decision being decisive. Um, he says it there in verse uh, 11. And then look at verse 16. In verse, chapter 12 again. Sorry, chapter 12, 18, sorry. But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one as he chose. Verse 24. God has so composed the body. The emphasis here is God organized the body. And, and the context in Corinth is people are squabbling over gifts. Specifically, oh, thank you, baby. She, oh, wanna hand these out? Wanna, I'll take one. These are the charts. If you want one of the charts, oh, we may need to make some more. If you want a chart, my wife will be happy to give you one of the charts. It doesn't even include the list in Peter. What a cheap chart this is. Come on, house? No, no, I'm not going to go through every single one of them. I'm going to go through the most, um, the two biggest ones that are up front and center, tongues and prophecy. I'm going to go through those extensively and then try to go through the other ones more specifically. But those are the two that I think we encounter, people claim to have, we would have to face-to-face deal with uh, those, those gifts. So I want to, in detail, go through tongues and prophecy and then more quickly go through the others. So that's my plan. Yes? Yes. Does that mean some spiritual gifts are better than others? Yes. Um, he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks in a tongue, unless someone interprets. Paul says that a little later in 14. 
So, um, but specifically what's going on in Corinth is just, just as earlier in Corinthians, he's talking about all these factions. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Peter, I'm of Jesus. It really boils down to Paul and Apollos. The Paul faction, the Apollos faction. Just as there's clearly bickering going on with the spiritual gifts communities, it really is going to boil down to tongues and prophecy. And in, in chapter 14, everyone else is out of the picture. We're talking about tongues and prophecy, and we're dealing with them. Um, so, <clears throat> Paul's whole point here, because clearly one group, and, and the problem seems to be the prophecy is being undervalued in Corinth. And so Paul's saying, look, it's God who decided what gift you got, dummy, and God gave you the gifts for the common good, and the body wouldn't be as valuable if it was all eyes and all ears and all toes. The strength of the body is its diversity, and that works at both levels, the diversity of age, of background, of, of race, and, cre- and, and, and history. Like, we are a stronger body for having a varied body. It's one of the reasons why I don't like um, Messianic Jewish churches. Um, I don't think the, the, the ears, let's call the Messianic Jews ears, I don't think God wants the ears all gathering together in ear church any more than I think God wants black church or white church or hip young church. No, but how many churches? We have our, we have our contemporary service at... We have ear, toe, and knee church at 10, and we have... Um, eye, tooth, and hair church at 11, and we, right? No, the whole point in this passage is the strength of the body is its variety, right? Which also is the antidote to people who I don't fit in here, no one else is like me. Wonderful, we need you. That's the point, precisely. Um, so, you know, re- listen to this and, and understand that 12, chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians is setting up the discussion of spiritual gifts. He's already laying it out. He's going to talk about love, and then we're going to dive in in chapter 14. And so keeping that in mind, pick it up in verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we're all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all are made to drink of one spirit. But the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it less, any less a part of the body. Translation, if, if one of you says, I'm not like him or her, I don't fit in here, I don't belong, you're wrong. That's what he's saying. It doesn't make it true. Um, and then he's going to flip it around. Because you're not like me, you don't belong. That's not true either. So whether you're the one who's feeling like you're the outcast or whether you want to judge people and and ostracize them, you're both wrong and need to stop it. Um, The ear should not say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it unless a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? If the whole body were young, where would be the wisdom? If the whole body were old, where would be the strength? If the whole body were black or white, you'd plug it in. The strength is in its diversity. It is a strength that we don't all look like each other. It's a strength that we don't all have the same backgrounds. It's this, Jesus had disciples. One was a terrorist. The other was a guy, an Uncle Tom. He had a tax collector and a zealot. The zealots were the people who were surreptitiously trying to fight Rome as terrorists. And he had a tax collector. Um, 
So, um, as it is, and then he goes down, if the whole body were an eye, look at verse 18, but as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them as he chose. God has given us the measure of gifts and giftedness that we particularly need. You might think that you came here, you might think that you're the one who is why you're here. Paul says, no, God arranged the body. And if you're here, we need you, and if you're here, you need us. We need each other, and we are gifted and arranged as God wants. Twice he says that verse in verse 18, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them as he chose. Which also then means we can't be like, you know, we need more eyes. God arranged it as he chose. Look at verse, um, and then he flips it around. So the first part is the, the eye can't say, I'm not a mouth. I, um, as D.A. Carson said, by the way, I'd, if I were to characterize myself anything, it'd be a stomach. Um, <laughs> What does the stomach do? It digests food and passes it out of the body. Right? Okay. Um, That's a good point. Okay. D.A. Carson came up with that, not me, but I'm like, oh, yeah, that'll work. Um, Then verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Um, And then, in case people are feeling, and I understand in Corinth, you had a situation where there were slaves and masters. There were people from all races and tribes, Jews and Greeks, Scythians, all sorts of people. They're coexisting. And then he makes some really remarkable statements. Say, I cannot say I have no need of you, nor get the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. So what that means is the parts of our body that may seem the most odd, strange, and unlike you, those are the most necessary and indispensable parts of this body. And the parts of the body are like everybody else. If anything, you're the ones we could do without. I'm, we can't do without anybody. But the only people he says that are indispensable are the weakest ones. You, you, you guys can deal with this. We'll keep going. Um, this, is, this, is a, this is a tangent, but it's a tangent I'm happy to hit frequently. Well, because as a pastor, here's my experience. I talk to people, and people open up to me, um, and they'll say things they might not say that they're not comfortable saying to you. And I hear so many times from people, I don't think like I fit in. Everyone else has got it together. I don't have it together. If people knew what my life looked like, if people knew what the baggage I was carrying. And A, I know so many people say that. It's like, no, 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 we're all broken. But even if you really are that weak and you are that um, despicable, we need you all the more. That makes you indispensable. And I hear that again and again and again. And so I'm I'm sure that if I hear that again and again, there's enough people who don't talk to me who can struggle thinking that. I want you to hear this. If you think I'm the weakest part, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. On those parts of the body that we think less honorable, which is a nice way of saying shameful, we bestow the greater honor. If you're going to wear anything, you're going to wear underwear, right? Right? You You might forget socks. Right? So those parts of our body... That, that are, we view as shameful, we bestow the greater honor. That's, what he's, that's the point he's making. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty. There's a triage for clothing. You will have undergarments on, right? Um, the parts that lacked it. That there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. And then after saying that, he says, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it, and God has appointed. Then he goes on to spiritual gifts. 
A spiritual giftedness. What's the point? There's a division. There's a plurality. They're not all the same. We all are gifted by the Spirit as He wills. God's ordered the body as He sees fit. And we should be content with the gifts we have and we should be thankful for the gifts other people have. And I'll crack and we'll get back. Um, and so then we're going to deal with some of, the, um, some of the gifts that there's controversy about in today's day, and we'll crack that with the gift of tongues. And the first and only point I want to make about the gift of tongues is this. I think it is incredibly unhelpful that the predominant common nomenclature for this gift is tongues, because it simply should be languages, the gift of languages. When the King James was translated, that's what it meant. Your mother tongue, right? You with me? Understand that? What tongue do you speak? And the reason why I say that is the word in Greek, glossolalia, is a simple common word that can mean one of two things, the physical organ of the tongue or language. That's what it means. It's what the King James meant, but they called it tongue. The problem is, nowadays, tongues already starts off with a sort of spooky, supernatural, questionable, um, mystic haze around it that really is unhelpful. And Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, and he wrote Galatia, just meant language. And I find it, so when I, when I discuss this, I think the first thing that helps to do is can we get the, the mystique off of it and talk about the gift of languages? We're, we're going to be talking next week, we'll pick up, we'll talk about the gift of languages. And there's absolutely a gift of languages, and we'll deal with it. But that's my first point only, is it's really helpful. This is a common everyday word. This isn't a specialized religious cultic word. This is just as common as our word language, which is as common as the word tongue was when the King James was translated. Um, and I think that's the first step in, in making this seem less whoo, and, and okay, let's deal with it and what the Bible says about it. Because here's what we're gonna do, by the way. Here's what we're gonna do in the coming weeks. We are going to, um, we're, we're not going to look at every person who claims to have every type of gift. What I plan to do is this. Let's, let's evaluate biblically what we'd expect this gift to look like. What should the gift, what we're going to start doing is what should we expect the gift of languages to look like and not look like? What should be its hallmarks? What should it look like? And then I'll leave it up to you to figure out whether where it's, where it's being claimed is valid or not. Um, and, and we'll, we'll do that. So rather than taking on, well, Kenneth Copeland's, uh, I gotta deal with Kenneth Copeland. We're not gonna deal with Kenneth Copeland. We're not going, rather than dealing with everything, let's say, hey, here's what it should look like, and if people who claim to have and function with this gift are doing that, awesome. Awesome, yay. And, although really, okay, yeah, okay. We're over time, a thought occurred to me, and we'll do that. That's where to pick up next week. Yes, Marina. Where does that Peter Hold on. Um... Yeah, First Peter's got a partial list as well. It is. The question is, where is the First Peter list? Um, it is. I think it's either four or five. Um, you are dismissed. I'll give it to you, um, Marina, as soon as I find it. Um, well, the one who speaks, not the one who serves, not the one who speaks, speaks, always speaks the oracles of God. It's it's that passage. 4.11? Yes. Yes. But what's significant there, Marina, is Paul breaks the gifts into two categories, speaking and serving. And if you think about that, there's gifts that fall into the speaking category. Tongues, prophecy, words of wisdom, words of knowledge. Those are all gifts that involve vocalization and articulation. And then serving. So he says, those who speak, those who serve. So it's a minor list, but it's still significant because it gives us another way to come at them. 
There's speaking gifts and serving gifts. Okay? Sarcasm. 